0: And open your Bibles again to Genesis chapter 11. And we begin today with the story of the Tower of Babel. As long as I can remember in my life, I knew about the Tower of Babel. Because in my home, we had the Bible stories, sometimes out of the Bible, sometimes out of Herlbert's Bible story book that's probably in some museum now. But uh, we did have the Bible stories. And I was fascinated with the story of the Tower of Babel, Bible. And I always enjoyed looking at the pictures in the Bible story books that would depict that tower that they built going up to the heavens. But when I became a young man, I certainly believed that this account in Scripture held the origin of languages but I couldn't see any other relevance to anything in my life or anybody else in the church that I knew. Who in the world is going to build a tower that's trying to reach up to heaven? Well, that was 50 years ago or so. Now, I think I can see that this account relates to a particular problem that is the essential problem of humans on the earth. And it's something that I have to deal with every day, that you have to deal with, that we all have to deal with every day. It's a particular sin. And we want to identify that sin and see what we need to do about it. Now we've come to the close of the historical prologue of God's drama of redemption. You remember we used to have some hand motions. We've seen the creation, the fall, the flood, and the Tower of Babel. And in that prologue to God's work of redemption that He's going to be beginning soon through Abraham, in there we're kind of given the setting of what's happening. We're told about what part of the world it was in. We're given something of the the names of the characters and the plot man and God and the descendants of man and man has sinned against God and disobeyed and then we see a little something of God's plan that's going to come in the end to rectify that problem the seed of woman is going to bruise the serpent's head So we know a good bit about the drama of redemption at this point. And if you have your Bible there, let's take a little review. In the first and second chapters, we had the creation. In chapter three, we had the fall of man. In chapter four, we had the first murder. And then in chapter five, we had a genealogy, the family of, excuse me, Adam's family record. And then in chapter six through nine, we had the flood of Noah. And then in chapter 10, we had another genealogy, a very unique genealogy, Noah's family record. Today we have the Tower of Babel in chapter 11 and the latter part of chapter 11 gives us a third genealogy and it's Shem's family record. Now our purpose today with genealogies is not to establish a complete chronology of everything that's going on there. But it is to show that there is a flow of history from one historical event to the next. So we have the creation and the fall, and then we have a genealogy, and then we come to the flood, and then we have a genealogy, and then we come to the Tower of Babel, these historical events interspersed by genealogies. And then we'll have another genealogy at the end of this chapter, and that will bring us right down to the days of Abraham. In Genesis Uh, Excuse me, let's go over what we're going to look at for today before we go to that verse. We want to look at the unity these people desired to have there on the plains of Shinar. And then the uh, notoriety that they were seeking. And finally, the accountability that uh, God requires of them. So in Genesis 10, we find the table of nations. And that is concluded with Genesis ten thirty two. These are the families of the sons of Noah after their generations in their nations. And by these were the nations divided in the earth after the flood. Now, in this passage, Genesis 10, we see an account that is absolutely unique in all of ancient literature. Henry Morris quotes Dr. William F. Albright who until his death in 1971, was the leading authority of archeology span in the Near East. He is referring to comments on the catalog of nations when he says, this table of nations stands absolutely alone in ancient literature, without a remote parallel, even among the Greeks where we find the closest approach to a distribution of peoples in genealogical framework. The table of nations remains an astonishingly accurate document. And so we have seen that everything in the Bible is accurate because God wrote it. There are a lot of things that we don't know or perhaps haven't discovered, but what we have discovered validates the Bible. Now keep in mind as we're studying here that Genesis chapter 10 gives an overview of what is happening in family, so-and-so, begat so-and-so, and on down the line. Then in Genesis chapter 11, where we see the Tower of Babel, that likely takes place somewhere in the context of Genesis 10. We don't know exactly when that happened, but we're going to see the names of some people that uh, we believe would have had something to do with the Tower of Babel. It's interesting that even in the time of Christ, on the Day of Atonement, Seventy bullocks were sacrificed for the 70 nations of the world that the Jews drew out of Genesis 10. That's what they believed. Now, 70 was a very important number, significant number to the Jews. There were 70 nations there from Genesis 10. Seventy is the natural lifespan in Psalm 90, three score and 10. In Genesis 46:27, we see there were 70 souls that came with Jacob down to Egypt. The Babylonian captivity lasted 70 years. The number 70 shows up in the translation of the Hebrew Bible into the Greek for the 70 nations of the world, supposedly completed in 70 days by 70 scholars and called the Septuagint, which in Latin means 70. And the abbreviation would be the Roman numerals LXX70. And that's just scratching the surface of the use of the number 70 in the Bible. But the Jews thought that a Messiah would come and gather in all the 70 nations that are identified here. And that's exactly what has happened. But we are a part of the gathering in process, as we heard in First Light this morning. Now we come to the desire for unity. Nothing wrong with that. In fact, unity is a pretty good thing in a family, in a church, in the workplace, wherever it may be. There was something very different about the people in Noah's day than people today. Were they more sinful than we are? Well, no. They all had one language. Genesis 11 1, and the whole earth was of one language and one speech. That means they all used the same words. Now imagine how the same language would facilitate business, industry, travel all over the world. That would really be a good thing in terms of the world's objectives and making profit. And all that sort of thing. It would be a good thing if you are a Christian. If those different nations came under the call of the gospel. And responded to that. And one day Christ will rule. And there will be one world where everybody is serving Christ. Well the ability to communicate really helps people to feel that they are understood and that they are understanding others. So communication would be a key factor. If it's in a marriage, if it's in a family, certainly if it's in a church, if it's in your business, communication is going to be key. And if you don't have communication, probably some troubles will surface that will be difficult to deal with unless communication is reestablished. We love communication in this church. That's the reason we stay here until 3 o'clock in the afternoon on Sunday, sometimes 6 o'clock. And fellowship is great, and that is a good thing. We're all speaking the same language in the sense that we're all seeking to serve Christ. Well, today we're seeing something in our world that would be a total paradigm shift from a former day. And it's a trend toward globalization. The trend is coming concurrently from public schools, churches, transnational corporations, the federal government, and the United Nations. Here is an article, The Very Large Church, New Rules for Leaders, by Lyle E. Schaller. Actually, he's written a book, and this is an excerpt. This book was written for those congregational leaders, both volunteer and paid staff, who recognize that their old rule book is obsolete and who are eager to learn how to participate effectively in the very large church game on a playing field that is defined by the culture, the societal context, clearly defined expectations, a theological belief system, a passion for evangelism, a high level of competence, creativity, innovation, and a new and different set of rules. That sounds kind of like the early disciples, doesn't it? Competence, creativity, innovation. Those guys couldn't get it right at all. But the Holy Spirit came upon them, and then they had power, and they turned the world upside down. Now, you notice here how there are some good things mixed in with some other things. The Bible is our rule book and God has given us that and there may be some new ideas that we can come up with, but we'd better be careful because what God has given us is intended for all people all over the world at all times. And we have to adapt that not to the culture, but to our own individual lives that need to be transformed. We adapt our lives to the scripture and not the scripture to our lives well it's interesting that that's happening in our day and that was the same thing that was happening back in the days of the Tower of Babel. now again it would be great if everybody embraced the gospel of Christ and that would be the effort of our missionary work but when it's just the world and the world has a lot of good ideas some that are just lifted out of Christianity but when it's the world The world appeals to my natural affections. And that means that I'm going to be going in a direction against God, against His law, essentially, that is written in the heart of every person. I'm amazed I hadn't heard the lesson that we had in first life, but it really relates to what we're talking about now. God's law is written in the heart of every person. We don't even live up to the law that we have inside. Everybody has their own natural, sinful proclivities. And there's something about that. When I'm getting ready to do something, if I'm getting ready to do something that is not what it ought to be, and I can think of some times in my life when I was much younger that that seemed to pop up occasionally. But if I were getting ready to do something It wasn't quite right, and I knew that it wouldn't be pleasing to my parents and probably wouldn't be pleasing to God. It would really help my feelings if I could get everybody to come along with me. Because if everybody's doing it, then that adds a little bit of acceptability and a little bit uh, of salve to my conscience. If everybody's doing it, it must be okay. And we're seeing that in our culture today, even among Christians. We wanna be careful that we come back to the scripture and we follow what God has given us so that we can be a part of that faithful remnant, even as were the descendants of Shem. Not everybody was going along with this uh, desire that we will talk about. There were some who were faithful. And we want to be those who are faithful to God and to His Word, no matter what anybody else may think on the face of the earth. Now we come down to the notoriety section and we go to verse 2. It came about as they journeyed east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. When they came to the beautiful and fertile Tigris-Euphrates plain, with the beautiful mountains in the distance, they said, This is the place where we need to settle down. We need to do some things here, and we don't want anybody bailing out on us, so we have an idea of how we can keep everybody on board. And that's where we're going. In verse 4, they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city, and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. So, Most of humanity is there, gathered in the plains of Shinar, to construct a city which is the very antithesis of what God has told them to do. Multiply and fill the earth. And then after the flood, replenish the earth. So this is not what God had told them, but it is what they are doing. So they're building a city, they're building a tower there is one artist's depiction of the tower. Now, I think this would probably be sometime after the language differentiation had come, and you can see the tower is in a kind of a state of poor repair right there in the middle, and things are kind of winding down as it does eventually with all of man's enterprise. Notice the gentleman down in the lower left-hand corner, You can see some people there. Some are bowing down to the king or the leader. And we'll get to him in just a little bit later here. Why did they want to build a city? Well, their goal was security. Why did they want to build a tower? Well, they wanted people to be able to look at that and say, Wow, you all built that? I can't believe it. The praise of men, I believe. Now, God says He is our security, and only God gets the praise. So we have to be very careful that we give Him the praise in everything. How are they going to do it? They said one to another in verse 3, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone, and they used tar or bitumen, in some translations for mortar. The ruins of some of these structures are standing today. And if you go to a rock to the city of Ur, you can see a ziggurat that is built out of those same type of brick that has lasted all these years. The climate kind of agrees with that kind of construction. So these folks didn't have a lot of stone to build out of, but they had creativity. And that's how they built the place. They wanted unity in the midst of their autonomy, independent from God. They wanted a name that would bring fame and the praise of men. What they didn't want was to be scattered over the face of the earth as God had told them to be. What are the two basic sins that have plagued mankind ever since Eve succumbed to the temptation in The Garden of Eden. I would suggest to you that it is pride and unbelief. Pride and unbelief. It all begins with pride. An unwillingness to subject myself to God's rules of faith. To subject my intellect to God's rules of faith. Well, I just can't understand how God could do that. So because I don't understand it, it didn't happen. The way God said that it happened that's nothing but pride now what does that sound like i really don't need anybody else telling me how to run my life i think i pretty much know what's good for me i don't believe my attitude or what i'm doing is any of any great concern to god look out with that kind of attitude Now, we've seen what happened when people started thinking like that, even back in the days of Noah. But here's the question Could pride and unbelief affect Christians today? Pride and unbelief. And the answer is yes. And I think I can tell you how Satan will tempt you in that area every day. Every day. A long time ago, I wasn't thinking about this, but I'm thinking about this now. I trust that you are learning not to chafe against God's providence. Not to chafe against God's providence. Consider what Puritan pastor John Flavel has said back in the 1600s. Quote, Deeply consider the sinfulness and vanity of torturing your own thoughts about the issues of doubtful providences. Now, let me interrupt just a minute, John Flavel, and uh, give a little definition of doubtful providences. That's when somebody said, now, wait a minute. If God's in control, then why did it turn out this way? If I were God, I don't think I would have done it that way. In fact, why did God do this to me? And then this? and then this, and then this. Now that is thoughts of doubtful providences. Why did God do what He did or what He's doing? He should have done thus and so. I could have told Him how to do it if I would only been there. Well, back to Flavel. There is much sin in so doing for all our anxious and agitated emotions. What are they other than the immediate outcome and fruits of pride and unbelief? There is not a greater display of pride in the world than in the contest of our wills with the will of God. It is a presumptuous invading of God's prerogative to dictate to His providence and prescribe to His wisdom. End of quote. Do we ever be guilty of pride? No way, we're not guilty of pride. That's the sin of other people. Pride is like the big dog that my next-door neighbor has. I don't think he bites. And I don't think he'll bite me. But if he does, I'll just kick him in the mouth and that'll teach him a lesson. Let me tell you, pride will bite. And it will bite you. And we have to be prepared for that temptation. Where does it begin? It begins with a thought. We have the best church. We still believe the Bible. We went to the Bible conference. Our basketball team can beat your church's basketball team. We got Paul Renfro now, no doubt about it. It's just a subtle little thought that comes where somebody thinks, you know, I've got things figured out and they don't seem to have it figured out. Now that might be true, that might certainly be true, but what makes the difference is the attitude of your heart and how you communicate that, and what you deal, how you deal with that kind of situation. Uh, There are a lot of things that can be said for prayer. Prayer is a really good idea. Now remember that a great forest fire is begun by just a tiny spark. Here is C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity. There's one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in somebody else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. I've heard people admit that they're bad-tempered, that they cannot keep their heads about girls or drink or even that they're cowards. I do not think I ever heard anyone who is not a Christian accuse himself of this vice. At the same time, I have very seldom met anyone who was not a Christian who showed the slightest mercy to it in others. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The vice I'm talking about is pride or self-conceit, and the virtue opposite to it in Christian morals is called humility. The essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison with it. Through pride, the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice... And it is the complete anti-God state of mind. Well, think of it. There's hardly any sin committed on the earth that's not somehow connected with pride. I have a right to do this. These people have more than I do, so I just go over and steal it. They ought to be just giving it to me anyway. That is pride. Now, do you ever wonder why the church today feels like they have to reconstruct the Bible to make it agree with modern science or secular psychology or whatever the current trends are out there? I can tell you it is pride and the praise of men. We want to be accepted by the intelligentsia of the world. We don't want to be the brunt of jokes on late night talk show. And so we accommodate the Bible and what we're teaching, and everything, so it'll kind of flow in with the world. And everybody just get together in one big united group and love each other. Now that's a good idea, but there's more to it than that. Well, what does a prideful person look like? Does he look like that guy in the mirror? Well, I hope not, but let's um, find out. Characteristics. Of the prideful. Now, we're going to be going through a lot of Scripture, so we're going to do this pretty quickly. And uh, you'll be able to follow along, I think, without any problem. A proud person thinks he or she is better and more important than others. Jesus told a parable about some people that went to a wedding feast. And one guy chose the place of honor for himself because he thought he was better and more important than the others. And a few verses later, Jesus said, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. That same verse is in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament several times. That's a pretty good verse. And then here's what uh, the proud person thinks about others. The Pharisee stood, was praying thus to himself, God, I thank thee, I'm not like these other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector over here. That's what the proud person thinks. Now, some may not have the boldness of the Pharisee to actually say that out loud, but sometimes it's just a subtle little thought down inside. Well, a proud person is not satisfied with what he has. He wants it all. That's the reason pride makes people restless. They're never so satisfied. They're on a quest to achieve more, do more, get more, Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that as such, because we do need to do more for God's kingdom and earn more money and finance the kingdom and all those things. But it's the attitude of my heart. What is my purpose in doing that? Now, we're going to use a guy in several instances because he's such a great example of pride in the Bible. And the Bible gives a detailed account of how he succumbed to the temptation of pride. And his name is Amon. You remember in Queen Esther's day. Then Haman recounted to them, that's his wife and his friends, the glory of his riches. That's Haman's riches. The number of his sons and every instance where the king had magnified him and how he promoted him above the princes and the servants of the king. Two verses later. Yet all this does not satisfy me every time I see Mordecai the Jew sitting in the king's gate. Because Mordecai, wouldn't bow down to him that relates to some others we're coming to number three a proud person has thoughts of anger or vengeance towards someone who gets in his way of getting what he wants what does he want i don't know could be anything but he doesn't like it he wants his way and if he doesn't get it look out nebuchadnezzar daniel 3:13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, now now here's the deal, you know the story. He had set up this golden image, probably of himself, or maybe some of his gods, and he wanted everybody to bow down in unity, so that everybody would be together in the kingdom, worshiping the same God, under his control, of course. But Shadmark, Meshach, and Abednego wouldn't do it. And Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring these boys. And they said, Let it be known to you, O king, that we're not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now they said it in a very courteous way. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath. His facial expression was altered. Do you know what that means? Does anybody in your family ever alter their facial expression? You better look out. You know what's coming. It was altered toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. What is that? Well, as his temperature is rising, he wants to punish these people. He wants to really give it to them. This is is vengeance on these guys because they didn't do what he said they ought to do. Well, if he can't get his way, a proud person's anger and bitterness begins to spill over on others. And kind of like the Tower of Babel guys, he wants everybody to get on board with him. So he'll be soliciting for some support in what he's doing. Listen to this back in Esther. Here's Amon again. When Amon saw that Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage to him, Amon was filled with rage. You see how these overlap? But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they told him who the people of Mordecai were. Therefore, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Is that crazy or what? Just because of his anger toward Mordecai, he's going to kill the whole bunch, the entire nation. What's going on here? He could have made them slaves. And it would have been of some benefit to himself and to the king. But no, he's going to kill them because he is angry. He is bitter. And he wants them to have what's coming to him. And that's what he thinks they should have. Number five, since he thinks that he's better than others, he or she becomes susceptible to wrong thinking and crazy ideas like we just saw. But here's another guy. You've heard of King Hezekiah. Excuse me. King Isaiah. King Uzziah, when he became strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly. And he was unfaithful to the Lord his God. And he entered the temple to burn incense on the altar of incense. Now, if you were Jewish, that is a crazy idea. The king does the work of the king. The priest, only the priest, because they've been ordained by God, can do the work of sacrifice and taking care of the altar and the incense and everything. But the king says... I think I want to go in there and see what's happening inside that Holy of Holies. I don't know how far he planned to go. But he had the censer of incense in his hand. And Azariah the priest entered after him with 80 priests of the Lord, valiant men, and they opposed Uzziah the king. What do you think he's going to say? Oh, I understand. Thanks for pointing that out. I, I don't want to get in any trouble here and violate God's word. No, that's not what he's going to say. Isaiah with a censer in his hand for burning incense, was enraged. And while he was enraged with the priest, the leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priest in the house of the Lord. Now, he was known as a good king. He was a king who believed in God. But he got this crazy idea that came out of the attitude of his heart that I'm not only going to be the king, I'm going to be, I'm going to be the priest, I'll probably be a prophet by next week. Number six. A proud person begins thinking that he or she deserves preferential treatment from others. Amon, again. Amon came in and the king said to him, What's to be done for the man whom the king desires to honor? Amon said to himself, Who would the king desire to honor more than me? And he thinks of a pretty good idea and the king said, Hey, do that for Mordecai. That must have been a great letdown. The proud person will at some point be brought low. Jezebel, Goliath, Belshazzar, Lucifer himself, Nebuchadnezzar. The Bible gives many examples of this sin. And in Proverbs 29:23, it says, A man's pride shall bring him low, but honor shall uphold the humble in spirit. What does God use to humble a proud person? He often uses adversity in order to shake out our self-sufficiency and our pride. I'm not saying that He always uses adversity for that purpose. There are other purposes in adversity. But that's the thing I need to do first is examine my heart. See if there's some pride there. Pride in the heart minus wisdom in the head equals foolish words in the mouth. And we can see that right here with Nebuchadnezzar. All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king twelve months later he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon the king reflected and said is this not Babylon the great which I myself has built, have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty while the word was in the king's mouth a voice came from heaven saying King Nebuchadnezzar to you it is declared sovereignty has been removed from you. And you'll be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle. A rare case of clinical lycanthropy. He thinks he's an animal. And he's out there in the pasture with the cows. But then he comes to his senses after a lengthy period of time. And he says this. But at the end of that period... I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. Now we've got to quickly wrap up the Tower of Babel. Go back to Genesis 11 and verse 5. We see that someone else was observing the action down on the plains of Shinar. And that surveillance is another example of anthropomorphic language where it looks like a man... He's got to go down and see what's going on. We know that God is omniscient. He knows everything. But He puts it in language that even a child could understand. That's what Dad would say. Let me go down and see what's going on down here. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people and they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose will be impossible for them. And I think that means nothing in the way of what they imagine or attempt. They're going to be just getting off into these crazy ideas if we don't check them here. And so, we're going to check them. Now, God had already told them what to do in Genesis 1.28. In Genesis 9, verse 1 and 7, Be fruitful, increase in number, and fill the earth. There is a man... Mentioned in Genesis 10, who is connected in extra-biblical ideas with the Tower of Babel. Josephus, the Jewish historian, says, this is the guy. His name is Nimrod. Now, Cush became the father of Nimrod. He became a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. and the beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Eric and Akkad and Kalna in the land of Shinar. In verse 11, uh, if you have a modern translation, it will say he built Nineveh also. So this guy was what we would call a mover and a shaker, this Nimrod, the great-grandson of Noah. Now, we have in our church Jacob's, and we have David's, and we have Paul's, and we have Stephen's. But I don't think we have any Nimrods. If we do, let me know. Nimrod means rebel. That's what the name means. And we're not talking about good rebels like the Old Miss rebels. Uh, we're talking about a bad guy. This was probably the first tyrant, dictator in the Scripture. We're not told a lot about him, but we see that he's a mighty hunter And a lot of Bible scholars believe that he was a hunter of men instead of a hunter of animals. And we do see that same term used in the Scripture, 1 Samuel 24, 11 and 12, Jeremiah 16, 16. You can think about Saul hunting down David. So it may have been that uh, he was hunting for guys that uh, had opposed him or didn't want to be on his team, whatever. But it says he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. I think that means that he made no secret about his actions. He was flaunting what he was doing in the face of God. You might say, instead of before the Lord, you might say, in the face of God. He was in your face. This was high-handed rebellion, I believe. And, of course, all the people followed him, but so much for autonomy. Because in a dictatorship, the only one that has any autonomy would be the dictator and maybe some of his cronies would have a little bit Josephus wrote that um, Nimrod purposed to build a tower too high for the water to reach you remember the flood well Nimrod wants to escape the flood so he builds a tower nine miles high I don't think that's the case I think it's probably a tower that has religious significance and maybe it's not so much for people to go up to God as it is for God the gods to come down to the people the tower builders forgot something Whatever you do then, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God from the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 10.31. Now let's wrap up this last section quickly, accountability. We are all accountable to God. What did God decide to do? Verse 7, let us go down and confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. Notice the reference to the Trinity there, let us go down. Babel means confusion. In verse 9, the name of the city is connected with the Hebrew verb Balal, which means to confuse, to mix, to mingle. In the Old Testament, Babel was connected with the city of Babylon. And that was a kind of a symbol of this world that is against God. You can read about that in Revelation seventeen and eighteen. Now we understand from the New Testament that God's not the author of confusion. He is the author, rather, of peace. 1 Corinthians 14, 33. So God changed the language. And then we go back to verse uh, 9. And that gives a description of what happened. And the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. What He told them to do all along. He said, hey, let me give you a little help. Can you imagine if you're on the workplace and all of a sudden the guy next to you is speaking in some Yugoslavian or whatever it might be? And you think he's just um, kidding you or making fun. And I imagine there were a lot of disagreements that broke out on that day. And finally started wandering around to see if he could find anybody else that is speaking the same words that he's speaking. And oh, there's a little group over here of Yugoslavians. Praise the Lord, I found them. And he gets with them, and they say, that other bunch has gone crazy. We better get out of here and go in a different direction. And they do. Two things happened when they discovered they could no longer communicate. Verse 8, the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. They stopped building the city and the tower. They just left it and they were scattered over the face of the earth. Now, what should Noah's descendants have done before they were planning that ill-conceived project? James chapter 4. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit or build a tower or whatever we think we might want to do. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. I was around some guys a long time ago in my life. When it got time to do something, they would just pray. They would just say, hey, let's pray. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on this thing. Let's ask there won't be any accident. Whatever that was on their mind, they would just stop and pray. Well, that's a pretty good idea. That's what it says here. Now, if you're looking for the Lord's will, that is another topic for another day. But we would say that you can find the Lord's will in Scripture and through prayer and some wise counsel based on Scripture. God's Word is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path good bit in the scripture about prayer, Proverbs nineteen twenty. Listen to counsel and accept discipline that you may be wise the rest of your days. Now we'll see as we get to Abraham that there was a special channel of blessing to mankind and it's going to come through Shem. And we see those descendants in verses 10 through 26 of chapter 11. So let's quickly draw it to a close, we'll run through this very quickly. How do you conquer pride? Review everything that God says about pride in the Scripture. Review everything that God says. James 4, 6 and 7, God gives a greater grace. He's opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, most people would be thinking, hey, I don't need this about pride. That's the other people, so you wouldn't be looking for the verses on pride. But if you're in the Bible, they're going to keep popping up. So I would say be in there and you will get the message from God. James 4, 6-8, through 8, we are familiar with that. Submit yourself to God, draw near to God, He will draw near to you. Humble yourself in the presence of God and He will exalt you. Number two, schedule regular times to get alone with the Lord and ask Him to search your heart. Search me, O oh God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Hey, number three is a good one. It has some other benefits too. See yourself as a servant and begin to serve others with a good attitude. You can do that right in the home as you prepare for marriage and the rest of your life. Jesus said, For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table, the one who serves the table? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? That is, in the eyes of the world. But I am among you as one who serves. We can be served. Whoever would be great would be servant of all, he said on another occasion. Look for some humble people and get with them. Find out their values, priorities, goals. They probably won't be wearing a little badge that says I'm one of the humble group. Look for them in the Bible, in history, in person as you would get to know them. Luke 7, 6, when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to Jesus, Lord, don't even trouble yourself to come further. I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. That's the reason I didn't even come to say I just sent a servant to be healed. What did Christ went on and healed the servant? And what did Christ say? I say to you, not even in Israel, Have I found such great faith? This guy was humble. Canaanite woman. Humble. Number five, become a great preacher. Yes, even you young ladies. Become a great preacher. Preach to yourself all the time. How shall they call upon Him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in Him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Very important. Talk back to yourself. Preach to yourself. Here's Milton Vincent. We've mentioned this little booklet before, a gospel primer. He says Christians need to be preaching the gospel to themselves all the time. We need to hear it. We need to hear that same word that we're giving to others. It will encourage you. It will remind you of some things. Matthew Henry says, Humility is the great preserver and order in all Christian churches and organizations. Well, I would add to that, not only is a great preserver in churches and organizations and entities and so forth, it's the great preserver of peace in your own heart. So we ask the question this morning as we close, have you made peace with God through the shed blood of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ? A little bit later, we're gonna have the Lord's Supper. And this would be a good time to examine your heart because if I've made peace with God, if I'm God's child, there ought to be some tangible fruit. I mean, some fruit that could be seen that's evident coming out of our lives. The love and joy and peace and so forth. And if you've never made that commitment of your life to Christ, you will know that it would be pride that would be holding you back. In fact, if there's some sin in your life, unconfessed, it would be pride that would be holding you back. So let's band together to fight against it and let's pray right now. Father, we thank You for the truth of Your Word. We thank You for Your equipping us with everything we need for life and godliness. We see these people back in Genesis who refuse to obey You. and They seem so far removed from us until we look at the attitude of their hearts. And then we see that It's the same type of thing that we deal with all the time. I pray if there's someone here today that doesn't know you, that this would be the time that they might come to you in true repentance and saving faith. Uh, Lord, may your spirit move in a mighty way on the heart of that person or the one that needs to confess some sin. And we ask all these things in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.